Please be seated. The New York Yankees, Yogi Berra, was one of the greatest catchers to play Major League Baseball. He's just about as famous for his witty sayings, about which he once remarked, I never said most of the things I said. Berra had two memorable sayings that, about travel that are pertinent to our consideration here today. The first is this, he said, you've, you've got to be very careful if you don't know where you are going because you might not get there. And the second is this, he said, when you arrive at a fork in the road, take it. The man of great humor, and the humor, of course, in these two statements turns on the reality that you cannot reach a destination that you have not identified. And when there is a fork in the road, you must make a choice. Not that people haven't tried to take a fork in the road on occasion. There's a story of a wrestling coach who was driving a team van and he approached a fork in the road and became confused as to which way he should go. And half of the wrestlers in the van said, take the right. And half the wrestlers in the van said, take the left. And he went right down the middle, right off the road. But if you arrive at a fork in the road and you take it, that's what you call a car accident. Yogi Berra sighed, when you come to a fork in the road, you must make a choice. And perhaps the most fundamental choice we face in this life is whether we will order our lives by the counsel of God or follow an alternative path. Now on one level, we are making such choices all the time, but I'm thinking more on the grander scale of one's prevailing life orientation. One of the primary purposes of the book of Proverbs is to compel us to face the fork in the road, to understand both options and where they lead, and to choose the right path. It's laid out for us that simply. There's a fork in the road, and you must make a choice. Know your options here. Know the destiny of either path. Be aware. Wake up. Listen. Be discerning. If you don't know where a path leads, believe me, it will take you somewhere. The question is where? And the answer to that question should illumine our decisions. The book of Proverbs insists on this fundamental truth. There are only two paths. I know there might be many who look a bit different, maybe even radically distinct in some of their philosophical teachings, but at the end of the day, there's really only two ways to go here. There's a branch in the road, you can go left, you can go right. But that's really the only option. One path follows the wise counsel of our Creator and leads to life. The other resists God's counsel and leads to moral ruin. And everyone in this room 
must make a choice. In fact, is making a choice right now between these two ways in your life. Many would argue this is too simplistic. It's just the book of Proverbs. It's just this book. It's just one unique take on things. Let's listen to it and hear what the teacher of Proverbs has to say, to hear what God the Father has to say to His people. He insists over and again, there's two options. There's two paths. So let's hear it. The two ways have been articulated already in the book, particularly in chapter 1 and verse 7, as we looked at that some weeks ago. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1, verse 7, And fools despise wisdom and instruction. As the book continues from that thesis statement that the fear of the Lord, the reverence for God, is the beginning of all discernment, the beginning of all moral skill, he then moves on in verses 8 and 9 to plead that the Son, to whom this book is directly addressed, and we all see ourselves as the children of God here in one sense, or as people who are discerning what this God is saying, Verses 8 and 9, we have this earnest call for the son to heed parental wisdom. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. The voices combining in unison to speak for God. Verse 9, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Take on this call to wisdom. Heed it. Respond to it. Then in verse 10 of chapter 1, we see an enticement here to hear another voice. Now we have the gang recruiter. There's the father here saying, live with wisdom and skill. And there's the gang recruiter saying, come along with us. There's great excitement in our way. Exciting, energizing, risky, fascinating. A life of crime and easy money. Come with us. The two voices calling from the two different directions, the two different paths. And then chapter 1 and verse 20 and following, another voice is raised in solicitation. Here, wisdom is personified as a woman, and she speaks boldly and loudly. Verse 20, wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Remember, we have three different kinds of individuals who spurn this call of God. The naive, the simple, the hard-headed, the mocker. Wisdom calling out. She's not hiding. She's standing where everyone can see, calling out loudly for everyone to hear and to respond to this call of wisdom. Now all of that context is essential as we come to chapter 2. Because we leave chapter 1 with Lady Wisdom, in a sense, screaming at the top of her lungs to listen to the counsel of God. Now, chapter 2, the tables are turned. And now it's the time for the Son to respond to wisdom's cry. And through the Father's voice, the Lord then cries out to each of us, calling us to heed His counsel, to grow in moral skill. We must choose the path that listens to Lady Wisdom's solicitation. The Father starts His appeal in this chapter with a series of conditions. And I'll I'll warn you up front, this is a lengthy poem, chapter 2, and it's one sentence long 
takes a couple pages on my Bible, but it's one sentence. So everything I have to say is going to be interrupting a sentence, and that's never a fun thing to do. But we'll try to do that at places strategically to get a sense of this one long sentence, this one poem that is now a call for the Son to respond, for all of us to respond to God's call. And in the first four verses, we find conditions. In verses five and following, consequences or the results as we meet those conditions or fail to do so. So two paths, two voices, now a response from us. Here it is, the conditions, verse 1 of chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it for hidden treasures, and then just to finish the thought, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. So as this plays out, it's pretty clear in verses 1 through 4, the ifs. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then here are the results. So the conditions in verses 1 through 4, let's consider them. In the first two verses, where does the emphasis fall? It falls on the reception of God's counsel. We must drink in God's truth with earnest, attentive interest. We are, in a sense, to lean on every word, bending our ears to hear God's truth, laboring to understand His word, clinging to His counsel as valuable treasure. I don't know if I'm necessarily proud of this, but let me picture two scenes from my life that I think you maybe can identify with, but I've been in school forever. I'm finally out, but been in a lot of classrooms, and I'll have to say, here's one scene. There's a number of professors, I used their lecture time to get caught up in reading. I hid books and wrote things down and did something else in the class because it just wore, they just were not compelling classes. I paid as much attention as I had to to not draw the teacher's attention, but I did other things during class. Don't anybody do that, okay? That was bad, but it, I can explain. <laughs> I did write, first of all, that I did that when I was very young, and then I realized I've done it within the last few years. So, <laughs> I, I, But there is another scene, and thankfully there were more classes like this, where I sat essentially on the edge of my seat, fascinated by every word the professor spoke, frantically writing notes, seeking to catch every single word that was said, reading outside of class, not inside of class, and striving to do the best that I could on those tests and deliver the best papers and outside work that I possibly could, drinking in every last word in those courses. And they've been life-changing. Now let me ask you, which of those two pictures, distracted, thinking about something else, just paying the minimal amount of attention, or drinking in every word, which of those two, on those two poles, describes you as you read the Bible on your own in daily life? How do you open the text of Scripture? How do you read it? Ritualistically, 
a duty, getting through it, paying as little attention as you really need to to be satisfied that you've read the text of Scripture today? Or do we drink it in? There's conditions here if you want to live a life that's skillful, and one of those conditions is laid out here for us in these first two verses is to be receptive, to want the truth of God, to receive it with glad heart and thanksgiving. Which of these two orientations is closest to the way that you listen to Bible teaching in the church? The way that you attend sermons on Sunday morning? Are you going through the paces? Or are you bent on every word? Not necessarily of the teacher. And I realize there's a human element in all of teaching. Not every teacher is as stimulating as others. But what is your orientation to the counsel of God? In an American Lit class back in college, I read American Lit. Whatever the teacher wasn't talking about. I was reading the assignments. I was getting other things done. Probably shouldn't have been doing that. But when we come to the teaching of God's Word in the church, do we realize we're hearing the words of God? Not what the teacher is saying, how that individual puts it into particular uh, understanding, but the truth of God's Word revealed and opened up and applied through this teaching of the Holy Spirit of God. We are hearing the words of God. How do we attend to the Word? Do we lean on every word? Do we drink it in? Do we come on the Lord's day desiring His Word? What is your orientation to the counsel of God to his revelation about how to live. Now this isn't going to make a lot of sense to those who have grown up in a day of text messaging, but there's a hard file in our house containing the handwritten love letters between Dan Miller and Beth Reed. These letters were so treasured at the time that we put them away in safekeeping. And because we have a healthy, God-blessed marriage, we don't read those letters. We never have read those letters. I don't know if we ever will read those letters. They don't matter. We've moved on and our life is so much fuller than it was back then. But think of it. We wrote those letters and we put them in safekeeping. Those words mattered between Dan and Beth. They mattered. They're still there. I just run into them now and then and shove them out of the way. And every once in a while, I'd poke a nose in there and see how ridiculous we sounded and all that, but maybe someday we'll have the time to sit down and be embarrassed together. I don't know. But you know, there's people here, you get that. You understand those treasured words. You receive that letter, that text message comes in from that person you really want to hear from, and you drink in every word. Listen, there is no love letter. There is no manual for work. There's no parenting book, no philosopher, psychologist, lecturer, or friend that can help you live with skill and discernment until you actively heed God's counsel and values His Word as life itself. How many of us 
turn a fairly deaf ear to the Word of God and are lapping up and seeking the wisdom of this world. Somebody out there's got the key. Somebody will say it right. Somebody will turn my thoughts. If we don't have a love for God's Word, we don't fear Him as we should and we will not live skillfully. This Word is life. And it's this Word we must heed. So receive it. Verses 3 and 4, the emphasis shifts a bit. It intensifies. If you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasures. It's not very hard to figure out what he's saying there, is it? We move past keen receptivity in verses 1 and 2 to active, persistent, disciplined pursuit of God's counsel. We must go hard after God's truth is the point. That's the condition. To receive it with desire and to go hard after it in understanding. To raise the voice, to dig in the earth for treasure indicates intense, active, even exhausting labor. So where's the rebuke here? Both the hard-headed, self-satisfied know-it-all, verses 1 and 2, and the lazy, lethargic believer, verses 3 and 4, must change paths. And I say to us as a church again today, our study of God's Word together is no casual hobby. We're not to gather here and just see if we can get a tidbit of interesting information. Something to add to my life and my self-satisfied ways of life. And maybe I can get a little bit of a bump here or there with some word from the pastor. No, we should come to church with our intellectual hard hats on, with the pickaxe of discipline, with a will that is tuned and ready to mine the riches of God's truth and to learn what God has revealed. His word given to us in this world, is a treasure. A treasure we go after and seek. It doesn't come naturally or simply. It is something we must labor to discover and to understand. Do we come with that interest in His Word? I thank God that we do. Many of us do. And I'm grateful for that. Let's continue to hear, heed the Word of God. So, The conditions, just to summarize, submissive, earnest reception of God's truth on the first hand. Secondly, aggressive, disciplined pursuit of God's truth. So receiving it keenly, going after it with diligence. Now what happens? That's the conditions. What are the consequences of meeting these conditions? We need to go hard after God's truth. The consequences is we will reap the rewards of wisdom. First of all, you will become a wise person who knows and fears God. That's the promise here. Go hard after it, and He will make you a wise person. Verse 5, so then, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And Someone might stop and say, so what? So I have reverence for God, and I have the knowledge of God. What does that matter? Go back again to chapter 1 and verse 7. The first principle, the fundamental aspect of wise living is the fear of the Lord. So receiving His Word and valuing it and going hard after, aggressively searching to know God's truth, the result is that I, I gain a reverence for God. 
sometimes we get that mixed around. I'm waiting for a sense of reverence for God, and then I'll read His Word. Read His Word. Know His Word. Go after it. Seek to live life skillfully, and you will develop a sense of reverence for God. I I can tell you by some experience, and probably more than the vast majority here, that as you dig deeply into Scripture, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. You will just simply open doors into new worlds into greater depth than you've ever understood. It never gets dry and boring. It just continues to deepen and show its richness and its wonder. We have this trust from God and we will become a wise person as we're changed by this truth. Now the knowledge of God is not simply the science of theology. It is a relationship that thrives as we learn and obey divine revelation. We learn what God has said and we respond to it and that changes us. I think, for instance, of learning to ski. It's not accomplished by studying a book. You can be really turned on to skiing by reading a book, but you're not going to get anywhere by reading a book, are you? That's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. It's like that. It's like skiing downhill. You have to learn by taking a risk. You can't set up your life at the beginning and say, well, I'm going to find out first if God's Word leads in the right place or where I want to go, and then I'll consider following Him. You, no, you've got to take a risk. You've got to go down the hill. You've got to get on the skis, strap them on, and go for it. But that's not it, is it? It's listening to a teacher who provides a set of principles and specific skills, and you put those skills into practice with probably a lot of pain along with it, but you you work your way to develop what you've been told and how you see others doing it, and eventually you learn to ski downhill. That's the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, living with skill. It doesn't just happen, and it doesn't come by reading the Bible, period. It comes by knowing this truth but putting it into practice and living it out. And when we do that, we will have a reverence for God and a knowledge of the Lord. And it will come through diligent study. We do have a book that matters. He's writing from a very different perspective, but Jewish author David Volpe says this. These are are beautiful words. He says, Study is so sweet because it is wresting meaning from the world. It's wrestling meaning from the world when we read a good book, a biblical book certainly. Making things yield their sense in language is the aim of study. He says the world is a riddle and the aim of this earth's inhabitants is to figure it out. God's revealed word is a help to figure out the riddle of life. You may be here today and say, I'm not figuring out that riddle. Life just continues to bite me. It just continues to be a source of failure and disappointment and emptiness. Go after God's truth. You will come to fear the Lord and you will come to see His wisdom. Knowing God is not attained by human achievement or effort either. As we see in verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
Although the father pleads with the son to hear his voice, the son must go hard after wisdom. Wisdom is yet, at the end of the day, a gift from God. He is its source. Knowing God is grace, not achievement ultimately. God alone, not even Solomon, is the source of wisdom. So it comes from his mouth, this knowledge, this understanding of how life works. Verse 7, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. You run after wisdom, you will become an upright person of integrity and justice. That's where it leads. That's the consequences. That's the results. Get wisdom and God becomes your shield of defense. Your watchman who provides moral protection. He puts a hedge around you, not letting you go into places that will destroy you and lead in emptiness. He'll do that for you as you go after His Word. Where else does this path lead? What are the glorious benefits? They continue, verse 9. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. That is, you will gain the ability to discern between right and wrong, just and unjust, honorable and unethical. What is more, verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. That is the result of drinking in God's Word, seeking it with great diligence, is that you will become a person who lives life with skill. God's revealed truth about reality will become precious to you, it will bring joy to your soul, and you will gain discretion, which is the ability to devise plans, think through situations, and make skillful decisions that honor the Lord. One of the outcomes of this moral maturity is that you will be delivered from certain people. Now we come back from the two paths to these two voices. There's going to be a deliverance from certain kinds of people in this world. That begins at verse 12. Delivering you from the way of evil, from, the, from men of perverse speech who forsake the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. As we're resting meaning out of the text, what's the theme of those verses, 12 through 15? What theme do you see continuing to rise? Notice verse 12, the word way. Way or path. Verse 13, the word paths and the word ways. Verse 15, paths and ways. It's clearly continuing to point to a path, a way of life. Just as we encountered two competing voices in chapter 1, father and gang recruiter, so here we encounter a solicitation to, to take a wrong path. In contrast to those who are anxious to pursue wise living that tracks with God's words, there's going to be voices calling us to forsake the path of righteousness. If we treasure God's word and seek after His truth, we will develop the skill to discern when we're hearing one of those voices. And we will develop the ability 
to discern and reject the influence of those who rejoice in evil and labor to pull us into the way of darkness. We'll have skill to sniff that out and to know where that road ends. A second example is described, a second person, beginning at verse 16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Stop there for a moment. We're, we're, we're not going to consider this woman at length today because we will meet her again and again in Proverbs. So we'll not spend time. We could pick this apart at great length. But let's remember the context is, immediate context, is training young men at court in Israel or a father training his son at home. That's the, the primary setting of the book of Proverbs. Very applicable to every one of us. But it does not surprise us then, as we understand young men, as we understand adolescents, that there's a lot of sexual content in the book of Proverbs. This is a matter that needs to be dealt with. And right here, early on in the book, there is a statement that this wisdom of God, as we go after it and receive it keenly, that this wisdom will keep us from the wrong kind of woman. A one who forsakes the companion of her youth. In that day, prostitutes were almost universally married women who had broken covenant with their husbands of fidelity and made themselves available to young men, particularly when their husbands were traveling. That was the setting, that was the day, very different than our own. But without going into a lot of detail, this forbidden woman, this adulteress, is a smooth talking deceiver who entices a young man to take the wrong path. Come to me, she says. I will satisfy you. She's beautiful. She's seductive, winsome, exciting, experienced, and liberated from her marriage vows, anxious to break God's restrictive commands and looking for a partner. Her front door is wide open. She beckons to come with smooth speech. And all you have to do is walk in the door. And when you walk into the door, your heel plants down on a greased slide that goes right into hell, right to death. The door is inviting. But once you get inside, you don't come out. It's a trap. I don't speak actually, and I don't speak of forgiveness as the text doesn't hear and all of that understood. But the way that it's described here, it's like the gaping mouth of hell itself inside her house. The stinger is in the tail. And so, verse 18, her house sinks down to death. Her paths to the departed, that is the, the ghosts, the, the dead, the corpses, that's where her path leads. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Again, it's not considering every scenario. But this is the typical way it heads. Outwardly she promises great pleasures, but enter her lair and you walk into the realm of the dead. 
She has the power to keep you in her clutches such that you may never find your way back to the path of life. She has that kind of power. Heed the counsel of God and you'll be equipped to sniff her out and to reject her appeal. So with these two people described by way of illustration, where wisdom will help us to avoid them, deliver us from them, we have a summation then in verses 20 to the end of the chapter. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Living a life of moral skill does not just happen. Such a life must be purposefully chosen. You, as you sit here today, have to make that choice. You will make that choice. And for those who choose that path of wisdom, it leads directly to life and blessing. There is uprightness, which speaks of being straight or right or pleasing to God. There is integrity, which speaks of a sound, complete, whole, healthy, unimpaired life. And thus one who lives with integrity, as we say it. In the context of ancient Israel, those who live in the land are those who experience the blessing and the grace of God. Those cut off from the land are those expelled from the realm of blessing and left out in the dark. I, I, I don't know how a poem, and by the way, this poem is put together in profoundly wise way. It's, it's really a study in Hebrew literature. But it is, put, it is said in the most poetic, carefully arranged, beautiful statement that you could possibly imagine in the Hebrew text. And it is saying to us, listen, listen. You must respond to the voice of wisdom. Now for those of us who've known the Lord for some time, and we read the Bible regularly, what did you learn today? Not a whole lot, did you? This is obvious stuff to anybody who knows the Lord very well at all. It's just the basics, the ABCs. It's not novel. And in light of this familiarity, we may fail to fully appreciate how radically countercultural counter this is. To say that there are only two paths in this world and to say that only one of those paths leads to life is seen as offensive and intolerant in our day. And in here, that might be a fairly comfortable conversation. In fact, we might be trying to stay alive and awake here as we hear the word of the Lord because this is so obvious, it's so evident to us. As the followers of Jesus Christ, we've gotten very used to this conversation. If, if we really are faithful followers of what Scripture has revealed and what Jesus actually said, not what the seminars say He said, you read the text of Scripture, we, we're, we've heard this a lot. Jesus said, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. I mean, our master, our teacher told us this 
We've come to terms with it a long time ago if we know him as Savior. Just two gates with two destinies. But we need to recognize how significant this kind of instruction is. It is a life-altering orientation if you hold to two paths. If you believe that's the reality of this world, it is a life-altering orientation. There is a fork in the road. There are only two options. One is the right way and one is the wrong way. Does that filter down into your life and the way that you see this world? It will radically distinguish you from a pluralistic world in which we live. But I say this to us as we think on that point. Never, ever fail to appreciate the fact that you see this reality and orient your life to it. Don't let this get old. Secondly, another reality we may take for granted is the fact that wisdom is not attained through speculative reason or mere experimentation. It's not earned by gaining a degree and getting society's approval of our status as scholars. Rather, as we are reminded in Proverbs 2, wisdom is attained through submission to revealed truth. Think on the significance of that. The path to wisdom is not found by having no idea where you're going and searching for unknown truths through experimentation and investigation. Every generation starting over and doing its own thing and finding its own way. No. Now here's the significance. This is where our lives are radically different as the followers of Christ and those who believe in the authority of Scripture. Here's the difference. The path to wisdom is found by aligning your life to what is set in stone. That is very distinctive in this day. The revealed truth of God that will stand forever. We keep coming back to that as our source of life and strength and wisdom. It's all been spelled out. It's all been revealed. Now, never in the rest of our lives will we fully understand it, but we keep coming back to the center. Not running out there willy-nilly experimenting and listening to others trying to figure out the way of life. I don't mean by that we close our ears and become dull people who don't believe anyone has anything to say. But when it comes to the truth... God has revealed it. He's entrusted it to us in His written word. We keep coming back to the center. Number three, we are also reminded that we live in a world of competing voices and conflicting claims upon our lives. While we have come to know there is only one right path, many seek to convince us that there are many legitimate paths and we should Liberate ourselves from the binding direction of Scripture. But as we look at this text, we realize that God mercifully reveals the truth about life on the wrong path. And He says to us right up front, let me tell you where that path leads. There's no stability. There's no sure-footedness. All joys on that path are fleeting. There is nothing 
that lasts. And you will be left on that path with an aching emptiness that pleads to be filled with something eternal, but it won't be found in that path, on that path. It's not there. Does that describe you? The fleeting pleasures of this world, not having the sure-footedness in life, not having the skill, continually making decisions that bite you and destroy you and leave you empty? There's a choice to make today. And by the grace of God, He's revealing to you the end of the path that you're on. If I talk to anybody here and you say, my life's a mess. I haven't listened to the voice of God and it is a wreck. Is there something that God's doing within you to say, I want to have a reverence for God. I want to know Him intimately. I desire to live with skill. I desire to have wise discernment. I want to know the difference between right and wrong. I want to be a man or woman of integrity. I want to be able to detect and avoid people who destroy me and drag me down. The good path of life that leads to joy and satisfaction. I want to get on it. It's important that you hear me for just these few moments. Willpower. Signing up for a Bible study course is not your answer. One has said the answer is this, and I think it's right. It is a long, deep process of unselfing. A long, deep process of unselfing. Now that process can be entered onto immediately. But there will be a life that heeds wisdom that is always unselfing. It is detaching from my own self-centered and foolish ways of thinking, tagging into what God has said. Well, that sounds like work. What do you think verses 3 and 4 said? You're going to have to dig for it like silver. But in that, on that path, we come to realize someone else's word is the path I must submit to and the truth I must grasp. And there is the thorn. That's the place of trouble. Have you come to the place where you realize that it's someone else's wisdom, someone else's righteousness, and someone else's word that reconciles you to God and gives you life? If you're looking within, I guarantee you, you will die an empty person. You need to look up. The truth is, on this side of the cross, it is Jesus Christ who provides what we lack in ourselves. By dying in the place of sinners, He grants to us His righteousness. He pays the penalty of our sin. And He reveals truth that we could never know on our own. He is the singular path of life. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Which means I cannot look inside. I've got to look up. I've got to look to the risen Christ who will give me His righteousness and His wisdom And I must then turn from the path I'm on 
and embrace His grace and ask Him to walk with me, revealing His truth through His written word as I move on into the future on this process of unselfing. You notice here, anybody, maybe you feel like, you know, the pastor's taking a bat and beat you over the head with it. Do you realize there's not one command in this poem? Nobody's beating you over the head. There's not one command here. It's simply saying there's two paths. You've got to make a choice. There's a fork in the road. And God has told you where these two paths lead. The offer is out there. Take the road that leads to life. Take it. Our Father, I pray in behalf of anyone who's not on that path of the righteousness and wisdom saving grace of Jesus Christ and I pray that you'd bring them onto it today help them to see it's not about self-reformation it's not making a a long list of promises that they're going to change their act and become a better person help them to see that it's simply submitting to the work of Jesus Christ and trusting him as their righteousness. Please bring them to that light. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we pause here to rejoice. These truths are obvious to us. But it's here, at least today in Proverbs chapter 2, it is here that we stake our lives. You have spoken. We've followed your voice, your path. And I pray, God, that you will deepen us in wisdom Wake us up from our lethargy where we do not keenly and with great attention heed your word, where we do not search for it as for silver, where we do not see your word as the key to the riddle of life. I pray that we'd attend to that word with diligence. And I pray, Father, that through your counsel you will conform us into the likeness of our Savior whose righteousness we claim, whose saving grace we celebrate today on this Lord's Day. Work in us to that end, we pray, through Jesus. Amen.